0: Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Jacqueline Kellish, Director of Public Engagement at the Center, and your host for this episode. Throughout the 19th century, American expansion was dramatic, extending US control of lands from the Mississippi River across the entire North American continent, as well as territories in the Caribbean and Pacific. American paintings from the era were filled with landscapes, products, and people from these far off places. But what was it that artists were trying to convey about America's place in the world? Scholarship on American art and empire has largely been limited to accounts of the Western frontier and indigenous cultures. But our guest today, Professor Maggie Chow, is helping us reconsider the work of these artists in this era of increasing territorial acquisition and global influence. Maggie is Assistant Professor of Art History and David G. Frey Fellow in American Art at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research focuses on 18th and 19th century American art in a global context. And this year, as a fellow at the Center, she has been working on a new book, tentatively titled, Painting and the Making of American Empire, 1830 to 1898. Welcome, Maggie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Maggie, your current project uses a perspective on 19th century American painting, that is profoundly interdisciplinary and politically engaged. You specifically call attention to the ways that 19th century American artists observed, responded to, and sometimes benefited from forms of U.S. imperialism during this time. But imperialism is such a complex and multidimensional concept. Could you begin by explaining what you mean when you talk about imperialism and how this term functions in the context of your current book? Sure, I'm happy to do
1: that. So there's a very... Technical term for imperialism, which is that one country takes over the government of another country, and sometimes that's militarily, sometimes that's through treaties and that's a sort of narrow way to think about empire uh it's often the way that historians do think about empire when you talk about say the British Empire, we talk about you know the British having rule over India and all of these other colonies in the nineteenth century uh, what i've been really interested in is. The ways that imperialism can be enacted in less formal ways. So sometimes that is in exploiting the resources of another country or through, you know, harvesting a natural resource, for instance, or exploiting a population for their labor on, say, a plantation. And I think of all of those as forms of imperialism, even
0: if that so-called colony isn't technically under the U.S. state. So in other words, it sounds like imperialism has more to do with a certain kind of unequal power relations. Exactly. And exploitation in this context.
1: Exactly. It's really, I think of it as really any instance in which two countries are in an unequal power relation or two groups of people are in an unequal
0: power relation. That's very helpful. Thank you. Why is painting in particular a good medium to use in launching this investigation into 19th century American imperialism. What kinds of notable perspectives are expressed through painting during this time that we may not see in other types of artistic production? I
1: find it really fascinating that when you look at the 19th century in a visual way, there are so many ways in which artists of the time are looking at the globe whether they're traveling to other parts of the world or whether they're painting people or things that come from elsewhere. And these are instances in which I think, because their work is available to the broader public, these are ways in which Americans in the 19th century were trying to understand how they relate to the world. And those attempts to think about those relations are not necessarily... At the center of, you know, when we think about empire, we think of, say, the government having, you know, negotiations, or you think about military power. But paintings are a way in which the broader culture is engaged in projects of empire or thinking about debates about empire at the time.
0: And I wonder, just to bring us to slightly more specific territory here, could you give us one example of an artist or a piece that you cover in your book and explain why you selected it for this project. In other words, why it's a helpful thing to use in understanding 19th century American imperialism. Sure, definitely.
1: Um, So I have a number of chapters in the book that are about landscape painting, because in fact, in 19th century America, landscape was the most prominent genre of art, let's say. And so artists were traveling all over the world to paint landscapes. Um, Among the landscapes that they painted were, for example, the Arctic. So there was a whole number of artists who went north to the North American Arctic to paint these landscapes that look like ice and icebergs um, on the ocean or a kind of like mountain of ice. Um, So this kind of scene. And in my research, I really think about how Painting those kinds of views are related to an understanding of the U.S. as a kind of global power, in part because, well, there's a simple connection, which is that the U.S. is among the many countries of the global north at the time that were exploring the Arctic. And this wasn't just scientific, it wasn't just to understand geology, you know, that was part of the project, but they were also looking for a way a faster route to Asia for trade to dominate a kind of global marketplace. Just like today, how many of our products come from Asia. You know, at the time, Asia was a really important trade center, not necessarily for the making of goods, but for raw materials. And so there was this quest to find a faster route there. And the Arctic was seen as the pathway But at the same time, my research on these Arctic landscapes shows that at the same time, the U.S. was actually also deeply invested in ice as a commodity. So they were literally harvesting blocks of ice from cold places within North America like Boston and Maine, and they were shipping that ice all over the world, particularly to tropical places like in the Caribbean. They were shipping it to India. So I'm trying to look at the parallels in in these like two kind of modes of imperialist thinking one, shorter pathways, the
0: other, creating a commodity that has a global demand for this commodity. I find it fascinating that each major piece of your argument especially those that are based in the 19th century, contains an interlude that allows your audience to consider the issues you raise through a contemporary political lens. This involves topics like environmental crisis and debates over racist monuments today as invitations to rethink the way that we understand essential cultural perspectives of the 19th century. Why is it so important to put our present in conversation with the 19th century in this specific way? It's important that we see. Colonialism
1: as not just something that was in the past. That not only is it ongoing because the United States is still a colonizer in many parts of the world, both formally, as in we have state power over other places in the world, but also informally through, you know, having military bases in other parts of the world, through exploiting other natural resources all over the world. And one of the ways to see imperialism as a kind of long story that impacts the present as well as the future is to look at what contemporary artists are doing within the uh, broader context of critique of imperialism because I think a lot of the most exciting dialogue around decolonization is
0: coming out of the work of artists today. That's so interesting. And it also raises related questions about the ways that this type of art in the 19th century versus today would have been taken up, seen and received by audiences. Could you talk a little bit about the kinds of audiences and the modes of viewership that would have existed for some of the art you talk about in the 19th century? And contrast it to that of the art you speak about in the contemporary moment. The 19th century art actually had a very wide viewership, perhaps wider
1: than we uh, see today uh, for contemporary art. So, today, you know, this maybe we'll start with the present because I think many listeners might be more familiar with that. So, you know, the artists that I'm talking about today are often, you know, fairly well known in the art world. So, you might see their work in a major museum or at a biennial. But those, Venues often are frequented by people who are already engaged in the art world in some way the, you know, they might be scholars, but they might be just those who are tapped into contemporary art. Um, I think there's a perception that contemporary art is difficult to understand. So it sometimes doesn't have a broad audience. In the 19th century, by contrast, a lot of the works that I talk about were quite popular. So these Arctic landscapes, for instance, some of these were quite large. So think about, you know, a painting that covers the entire wall of a regular size room, for instance. And oftentimes, these paintings would go on tours, and they would they would have a sort of elaborate advertising apparatus around them. They They would have been seen by audiences, not everywhere, but in major cities where they would have been similar to like a movie today, you know, where it would hit the theaters and people would go out and see it and then they would talk about it. It would be reported and reviewed in papers. So sometimes these major artworks, these kind of elaborate artworks, they were shown as individual paintings often as well by themselves because that was sort of the main attraction. So they did have a fairly broad audience broader than what we might say an artist today, a
0: contemporary artist today engages. We've talked a little bit about landscape as an important element of 19th century painting, and this was actually the subject of your previous book. You examined the sort of role of landscape painting from the late 19th century through the First World War. The time period of this project, however, does overlap slightly with your earlier work, Has your thinking about landscape in that earlier time affected the way you approached this project, or perhaps has your perspective on landscape changed through your latest research and work?
1: With my first project, I was really thinking about the national context of landscape painting, what landscape painting meant to Americans as a kind of nationalist kind of painting. And for this project, the lens is slightly different, so really looking at these images of the globe. And... It has changed a little bit in that often things that I really wanted to delve into in my previous book, I couldn't because it was a book that was limited more and had a more national scope. I mean, the previous work I've done does inform in a lot of ways the the newer research because it gives me a sort of broad contextual point of a framework to understand the new project.
0: You talked a little bit about the Arctic as one example of subject matter that shows up in a very important way in these 19th century paintings. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the other subjects or approaches that you feature in this book when it comes to 19th century art. Sure.
1: Um, I also talk about still life painting, particularly still life paintings that represent imported goods. I have a chapter that is really focused on a type of painting called trompe l'oeil, which is very hyper-realistic representations of imported things. Um, And I use that to talk about this idea of circulation of global goods and how that was understood as a form of colonial relations. And then I also have chapters on genre painting so these scenes of everyday life and particularly Winslow Homer who is an artist who was really identified with that type of art and I talk about his images of the Caribbean particularly of divers of these Afro-Caribbean divers in the Caribbean and I also talk about portraiture and its relationship to anthropological and historical disciplinary thinking. So what does it mean to paint a portrait of someone from another place in the context of these broader shifts in these academic disciplines like anthropology and history?
0: I know that a huge amount of research has gone into this project. And I'm wondering if there have been any particularly unexpected or interesting discoveries that you've made in the process of preparing to write this book that you'd like to share with us today. A little look into the archives from your perspective
1: yeah sure. I had a particularly this was research that I did actually, while I was here at the center. Um, I decided to write a chapter about the tropics. And um, I was really focused on an artist named Frederick Church, and he was he went to Jamaica and was painting these tropical landscapes of Jamaica, and that's not unusual at all. I kind of expected, you know, I kind of knew what I would find there. Um, But in the process of researching his work in Jamaica, I discovered that his wife was an avid collector of ferns, (laughs) um, which was very common in the time. This was the mid-19th century. There was a kind of rage around ferns, (laughs) that um, people loved ferns. They collected them, they pressed them, they cultivated them. So it's not that it was so unusual for her to do that but it turned out to be deeply tied into church this painter's engagement with the tropics as well and um, that sort of I developed this whole little find about the ferns into a major component of the chapter Um, so it's really thinking about how ferns are a kind of emblem of imperialism in fact in the way that they both were collected and in the way that they appear in his paintings because they actually become very central kind of botanical figures in his paintings, if you will. Um, and I ended up researching, going deep, deep, deep into the history of ferns and the way that botanists were talking about ferns and really fascinating ways. Like just one example would be so ferns are a very a prehistoric plant. They have their origins in sort of uh, prehistoric Time frame, and that becomes really interesting for this period because there was this notion about the tropics as being a kind of primeval place to begin with. Uh, So, people who were fascinated by ferns and collecting ferns and cultivating ferns would create these like fern gardens that were encased in glass, and they would often put ruins in them. So, they were sort of creating these little prehistory little vignettes in their little botanical terrariums, essentially. And that was also what was happening in paintings. There was a similar kind of interest in this creation of this sort of
0: fictional ruin landscape. That's a wonderful meditation on the excitement of research and how unexpected small discoveries can inspire you to go in completely different directions for a project. I'd also like to ask a little bit about some of the artists that you talk about and their particular relationship to the imperialism of the world around them. I can imagine that there was a kind of ambivalent relationship between many of the artists you cover and the events of the world that sort of led them to their subject matter. I can imagine that some artists may have critiqued what they witnessed in imperial terms throughout the world. Others may have indirectly benefited from it. Perhaps those happened within the same instance, can you talk a little bit about that kind of relationship between artists and their perception of imperialism?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a very complicated thing to navigate in the book. I would say absolutely all the artists benefited from U.S. imperialism and the creation of U.S. empire at this time. It allowed them to travel. It gave them the opportunity to depict things that they did. So without doubt, they all benefited. However, their relationship, whether it's critical or neutral or, um, you know, supportive, really varies. And sometimes it's quite hard to determine because, you know, we don't often have them writing a letter, say, or a diary entry that, Tells us these things. Um, so, just to give you an example, I write about a portrait painter named Hubert Vos, and he traveled all over the sort of Pacific world, um, from Hawaii to Southeast Asia making portraits of um, indigenous people, indigenous rulers or uh, elites from other parts of the world. And he is very much doing this with the idea that he is going to create an anthropological form of portraiture. And that very much is informed by imperialist ideologies of the time. So you can say on the one hand, oh, he's absolutely kind of supporting um, imperialist endeavors by doing these portraits that place indigenous people within a framework of anthropology. At the same time, though, the reason he's doing this is actually because he had just recently gotten married to someone who is of a Hawaiian elite, native Hawaiian elite family. So his first stop in Hawaii is because he's his new wife to meet her family. And so he's very much because of her status, very much involved at this time, this is, you know, in in the 1890s, very much becomes part of, even though he's a Euro-American artist, he's become part of this circle of indigenous Hawaiians who are resisting this U.S. takeover that's happening at the time. So it becomes really complicated because he's personally, you could say, well, he's actually very anti-empire. You know, this is a moment when Whether Hawaii should become a colony is very much a subject of debate. At the same time, he's also using a kind of anthropological lens to depict the people that he meets in Hawaii. So... It's quite complicated. And that's just one example. And there are other artists who, you know, fall on this spectrum as well, though oftentimes their status isn't as personally kind of complicated, but it's hard to determine. It's a challenge of the project, in fact. I often get asked, well, did this artist support Empire or did they, you know, resist it? And it's hard to say.
0: Like your artists, it sounds like you employ different perspectives and disciplinary lenses throughout this project. You are an art historian. You also have talked about political and anthropological lenses in your work. I wonder if you could talk to close us out about the particular disciplinary influences that are at play in this project.
1: Absolutely, yeah. This is a very multidisciplinary project, I would say, because though it focuses on paintings as a kind of core in each chapter, the ways that I get at thinking about paintings and what they mean is very much looking at them through the lens of other disciplines. So that might be anthropology. It's often, uh, you know, as in the case of the ferns, a history of botany. In the case of the Arctic and the still life paintings, it's a kind of business history or commodity history that informs what I'm arguing. And really, I think that The goal of doing work this way is that I'm really interested in thinking about how did empire really happen? You know, not just, well, when did the U.S. take over Hawaii, for instance? You know, that is one history one could write. But, you know, one could also think about, well, how is a colonial relationship established through, say, how people traveled between these places, or how things kind of got imported or exported, or how materials got extracted, how shipping lines got created to enable all of this to happen. And in order to really look at empire in this more holistic
0: way, um, you really have to think through multiple disciplines. Thank you so much, Maggie. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.